Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR Radio Fitzroy, Victoria, on the lands of the Wurundjeri and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Earth Matters, we bring you environment and social justice stories. I'm Kerry Lee Harding. Hello and welcome to Earth Matters. This week we welcome you to Saving the Murray-Darling Part 2. And today on the program, I'm joined by my guests, Nicole McKay, a passionate environmentalist from Naya, and William Brian Bates, also known as Badger Bates, a Barkindji elder and traditional owner. And both Nicole and Badger are both passionate about saving the Murray and the Darling River systems and environment. Hello, uh, my name is... uh... William Brian Bates, but uh, this Badger for short, that's my nickname and that's the name I sort of go under where everyone knows me by. I am from Wilcannia in western New South Wales. I'm a Barkindji person and uh, all our souls, where I come from and my people, were Barker Weembiches and that's when we are Darling River Black from the Darling River. To us, the Darling River is our lifeblood, it's our mother is everything to us. Without the Darling River, we are nothing. We got no name, we got no culture, we got nothing. So that's why I took it on to try and help and try and fight to get water back in the river, not just for us black people, but for everyone. We are around from, say, just below Burke, is about, say, five or six k's out of Burke, right down to Wentworth, that's our country. Uh, we from Burke right down to Wentworth is our country. And when all the cotton up in the top, they rape the river and don't leave anything for the people down below, around Wilcannia, where I originally come from, where I originally come from is... Uh, we only got a little low-level weir, just a few rocks and a little bit of concrete. It's not a big weir. And when the water comes down and they stop the water, we get plenty of blue-green algae. Our kids get sick. A lot of the young people uh, commit suicide and everything, and it's just bad. A lot of our elders passed on from sorrows for what happened to our river. And... Then about 100 k's at the crow fly towards, down towards Wentworth, there's a place called Menindi. Mm. In 2000 and, so in 2001, they started mucking around with the Menindi lakes and draining it. And just before they'd done all that at Menindi, it was a blooming town where people that grow, you know, veggies, uh, Grapes, table grapes, they'd send them to Sydney and all over the place. Mm. There was employment for the people in Wilcannia and at Menindi. Mm. And then when they started killing the lakes, it just uh, destroyed everyone. There's no employment. And, and down there now, when you drive down to where all the grapes used to grow and oranges and all that and all other fruit, mm. it's, just, it's a disaster, just like a war zone. All you see is just dead trees everywhere. Mm. And it's just bad. And then at Burke, up from Mulcanya at Burke, they had a lot of uh, 
citrus growing there, you know, oranges and a lot of other stuff. Mm. And then when they started taking all the water, all that just went to pieces around North Perth. They haven't got much growing there now. But there's a lot of cotton around the area. You must have seen the environment change very much. How does the environment look now on your country compared to what it was like when you were growing up as a young, a young man on country? It's disgraceful. Very disgraceful. I'm very shocked with uh, our people would call themselves government and reckon they're going to do everything for us. I am 70 years of age. I was reared up on the river. I'll be 71 in October this year. And to me, there is nothing. And when I sit down and tell the young people what happened, but they can't imagine it being like it is, you know, what I've seen when I was small. And then with the Menindee Lakes, it's bad management. It's really mismanagement. But what they'll do, they'll put water back into the Menindee Lakes to make, and then they'll bring fish up and let the fish spawn in the lakes. Then they'll let them go. To me, in one way it's good management, but to me I will say that's bad management because remember a fish can swim. So when they let those fish spawn there and let them out, they let the water go from the Menindee Lakes. It will go down the Hannah Branch, that's a part of the Darling River system, and then down the Darling River and into the Murray and they go on. And they reckon that's good management, that's bad management because they are not thinking about the mussels, the freshwater mussels in the Darling River and in our country, out in western New South Wales, there is two different sorts of mussels. One will grow big, and it's a cluster what's in the river, they're big mussels, but the ones in the lake, they're small mussels, and they sort of look like a pippy shell, but they're a little bit big in the pippy and they got a very soft shell, and they got to have water. They will die quicker than the big mussels in the river. And they say it's good management. That's bad management. Then people will say, they will talk about this thing, El Nino, and that, or that. To me, they are causing, and they're talking about evaporation, they are causing the evaporations, and they say the Menindee Lakes will evaporate. To me... If they go back and look at black people's history around the Menindee Lakes area, we got shell middens what date back 25 to 30 to nearly 40,000 years there. Also, at the Menindee Lake system, there is megafauna like Diprotodon and Diproptodon and all that. Tasmanian devil, dingo, skeletons, they all laying around there. But the focus is, is they think it's like Lake Mungo. If we don't manage the darling properly and that we is going to end up like Lake Mungo because everything's there exactly like Lake Mungo the only thing was important from Mungo is they found the Mungo girl or the Mungo lady what they call it and the Mungo man we didn't do a lot of carbon dating at Menindee or Newman remains it would be nearly the same so if you take all that into consideration, then, so Menindee Lakes had to hold water a long time ago to get those dates. It's not coming from the Darden River, it's coming from the Menindee Lake system. Then I speak about the Hannah Branch, and on the Hannah Branch, out on the Brogan and Wentworth Road, there's a lake there, and they call it Popular Lake. 
and there's a lake called Nietzsche Lake. They found an Aboriginal person out there, a skull, with uh, 250 Tasmanian devil teeth with holes in them. So that means that was a long time ago the water was in those lakes. Lake Pomata, with the stupid pipeline, what they're putting in, what a lot of people don't want, because there's no guarantee that the Darling will flow. You're listening to Earth Matters and broadcast on the Community Radio Network with me, Kerry Lee Harding. And that was William Brian Bates, also known as Badger Bates, a Barkindji traditional owner and elder. And coming up next, you'll hear from Nicole McKay, a passionate environmentalist from Naya. And today we're in conversation on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and what it means to some community members, some of the politics involved and how some community members are feeling from different parts of the country about saving the Murray-Darling wetlands and rivers. So um, my name is Nicole McKay. Um, I grew up in Naya, which is a beautiful part of the Lower Murray, where a big Mallee Sandhill reaches down to the wetlands of the Nyavanifa Forest. Grew up watching the sun rise up over the forest and the moon. And, um, you know, the pattern of water coming up in the springs and that would flood into the forest, which uh, elderly people in the district called a swamp. It was so often wet. Uh, and these our grandparents lived in Robinvale, so we regularly did that journey and saw the water in all the beautiful um state forests that were the corners of the river bends and they were regularly inundated. We also had uh, lakes that were, you know, came out from, from the river, Lake Poonboon, Lake Puma, uh, Haywood Lake, that, and various ones that, that were regularly and almost always had water in them. Um, so this was, I guess, my childhood and youth until I was about 24 or so. And this was just a natural part of the ecosystem that was there and it was actually as our eyes were becoming open to how exciting it was that we're actually living in this this landscape that had a wet and a dry time which wasn't sort of was known by the people around but not generally acknowledged as an asset in Victoria we began to see how amazing it was all these water birds and uh, water ribbon and all these different plants that came up and lived on top of the floodwaters and then the waters, floodwaters would recede um, and people would be uh, you know, a bit frustrated. Everyone lived around the forest and it was this fantastic public area that everyone loved and used. And at the same time as that, you know, Indigenous people used the forest and lived in the forest for extended periods of time um, and still do go into the forest in that, in that same type of way, but it was, that was a common practice. So there was this wonderful public area and it was also, you know, that Indigenous connection still really, really so strong, but it's also really recent. It's not, this is not far back history that we're talking about here. And it's not far back history that those waters disappeared. It happened with the advent. It had, there was, I believe when I've spoken to people in the community, there has been a gradual lessening of how long the water was in those areas for, as some dams were built and there was extra allocation in New South Wales. But, and maybe in Victoria as well, um, however, the real, real sudden change in how much water was generally around happened when water trading started with the Naya to the Border Salinity Management Plan, I think, was like the, the beginning of it. And that, so that was early 90s, we started to hear in the community about this idea of um, moving irrigation districts to where there were sand hills and less problems with salinity and... 
and it was it was really spoken about to people in this little irrigation district as being a really good thing for the environment. So um, I w- certainly, were, by that stage, was an adult into my twenties, and we're a really connected community. And although I'm not an irrigator, never was. My family was in small business. Um, I was still really interested in what it meant and what was going on. And at that same time, a group of us friends started to just see all the beauty in the bush and get really into um, planting trees and getting grants and, you know, just sort of soaking up what was there and and trying to learn everything we could about our environment. Yeah, and so we started to hear about this thing, water trading. Um, It was foisted, I guess, well, you know, there were sort of consultations and it was a program to make... um, irrigated districts uh, more flexible so people could buy and sell water whereas previously it had been attached to the land so uh, you know it was um, people were convinced to go along with this even though there were a lot of uh, concerns that it and the concerns were that it would make the irrigation districts unviable because people would sell the water off you know various people there if, if people have an asset then they can sell it year to year or sell it um, permanently, that will suit some people. But what it means for an irrigation district is that, and they call it the Swiss cheese effect, is that um, there's not as many irrigators that cost the water costs more. So the community was worried about that. But nonetheless, it was sort of a government program. Anyway, as soon as people could trade that extra water, the reality was that a lot of the water that was held as water rights by the, that small community, and probably you know, and numerous others all across the basin, it wasn't used every year because a lot of farmers were hobby farmers or they didn't need all that water. Now, because there wasn't a way to trade it, it just, uh, you know, it floated down the river, really. So there was all this extra water in the system. And what water trading has meant is that that extra water got used up very, very quickly, sold on to other developers or sold on temporarily. Which has had a detrimental effect on the environment, no doubt. What does it look like up there now? Um, well, we had this um, really long period, so it was 10 to 15 years when we, where we would have yearly or every second yearly uh, low-level floods, so they would come up into the lakes and into the red gum forest that really go right along the river in this area, the Lower Murray. Um, they become really, really dry, so you've got this terrible sense of the ground drying up and then the trees drying up and what we had was really big like there's a lot of small trees and they're you know environmentally then neither here nor there but the really big cultural trees so 500 year old trees dropping their limbs and then so many dying i've heard figures of say 70 percent of these big old trees which are really everyone's connection with the past so the connection with you know indigenous history really really important you know the spirit in the land type of stuff just drying away and dropping away because they can't survive well for more than five years without water. It's not the way that that system works. Also, well, there just wasn't the wet the wet season, so there, there wasn't there, there, those water plants did not get to live. Now, we did have a big flood in 2011, and then again in 2016, 2011-12, the big flood that went right across, you know, from Naya right down to central Victoria, it was like a sea, because... Um, that was a massive flood. After all those years of no floods or very, very minor, there was a massive blackwater event because by taking by all the smaller floods, what they do is they flush out the system. So all those uh, 
state forest areas, um, the, the litter on the ground and the gum leaves and everything gets swept down the river at a regular intervals, putting nutrients into the river. Also, this big flood took nutrients off farmland as well. So we had a massive blackwater event that killed incredible amounts of fish and crayfish. So if we don't have a system that's regularly flooded, regularly having high rivers and flushing out the, 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 um, the floodplain, we will inevitably have blackwater events more often. It's impossible not to because when we do get a big flood that's uncontrollable, they will put this blackwater into the river that does kill fish and crayfish. So we had this site of along the river... Now you could just walk along and see all these crayfish along the edge of the river trying to breathe because they couldn't breathe in the water. And that was because the whole system was dried out for about 15 years. So there was all this build-up of, of leaf litter on the ground. So this is what's going to happen. If we don't have enough water in the system that's residual water or um, enough water that's there not to be used to have the whole thing flow, we're going to have more blackwater events. It's just going to happen and it will devastate um, aquarian life. Um, Small blackwater events are are sort of a natural thing that had happened occasionally, but they never happened in my youth and, you know, young adulthood. We had regular floods, smaller floods, and it didn't occur. Um, The other thing is that when we did have that flood in 2011 and then again last year, that was a sort of natural flood, I guess you'd say, is that the, the, the plant life did not come back to the, flood, to the red gum forest like it should. So all the plants that I remember as a, a younger person, they, didn't, they hadn't recovered. So this is devastation on a huge scale. Um, the other thing is that a lot of our lakes now, the irony of the basin plan and the way it's been managed is that um, one irrigation area, I think, like Puma, it's, it's a lake, but now it's not considered an irrigation lake because that, those licences, I think, have been sold in some way. It's not considered for irrigation water. So if we don't have high rivers, we've got a whole series of lakes that are not going to get water in them. Now, these are... How, how can there be a, a, a state of mind that says, oh, that's OK to have lakes without water? You know that they and as as we've seen, there's huge developments in our area, and there's huge developments up and down the river. The likelihood is, if the if the water isn't recovered for the for the basin plan for the river, that means having enough residual water in the river. Those lakes may never get full again because there's no guarantee for them. There's no requirement for them to be have water. The whole system has to be a closed system, so it has to be regulated in the same way and control over that everywhere because. You can buy as many licenses if you like, but if there's not good meters on pumps and if there's not good um, policing of compliance, then excessive amounts of water can be used anyway. So um, it's not achieving its aim of having enough residual water in the river. Um, The Mm. other terrible thing is that blue-green algae is caused by nutrient runoff into the rivers from fertilizer and from farming, but it's exacerbated when there is high temperatures and not enough flow in the river. If you don't have enough water to make, you know, not really hot water and it's not and it's not flowing, then it's more prone to blue-green algae, and that's been shown to be linked to motor neuron disease. Neuron disease. So here we have the Darling River with blue-green algae alerts at various, you know, really regularly these days because of the low flows, and along the Murrumbidgee River is a 
um, an alert area for motor neuron disease, so it's shown to have high numbers. There's been research come out about it in the last month. Um, so we've got all these implications that are so shocking. It's taking the life out of the land. You can't, if you take the water out of the land in an Arab country, you're really taking the life out of the place. I'm wondering how are other community members feeling up your way around Nile um, and the region? So there's a lot, a lot of distress about the state of the Darling River and how that can possibly be allowed to happen, how that can be acceptable. Um, and it's just, I think there's a, a sense of disgust, really, and but also um, disengagement because the policy area is so complicated and it's made so complicated by, in a way, the laws and the processes, but also the, by the endless consultations that go on and on and um, that very well-funded lobby groups uh, seem to dominate and the rest of us who live here really don't get much of a... There's no formal way for us to be acknowledged or have a say so um, that's not the voice that gets heard uh, when I'm talking about that. I guess all the people who live in these communities Indigenous people all the other people who work you know, nurses um, shop owners, whatever they may be they don't hold an irrigation licence they're not part of the Farmers Federation but we live here we want to live in a, a, a live, you know, bright um, environment where that's got life in it. People go fishing, people camp. That's, you know, that's what makes life good. This is the vast majority of people and they don't have a say. And I think that also it hasn't been explained to them what the Basin Plan's aim was. The Basin Plan's aim was to put enough water back into the system that it could survive and sustain life, human life, agricultural life, but, um, you know the life of animals and plants, which is what makes life good. So all the rest of us here, we don't really, uh, there's no real voice for, for us and there's uh, the other voices uh, get heard loudest and it's, that's sort of the sense that people have. You've been listening to Earth Matters, broadcast on the Community Radio Network with me, Kerry Lee Harding. And today on the program, you've been listening to Saving the Murray-Darling, Part 2. And that was Nicole McKay, a passionate environmentalist you just heard there from Naya. Also in today's show, you heard from Aboriginal elder William Bryant Bates, also known as Badger Bates, a Barkindji traditional owner and elder from Broken Hill. And both Nicole and Uncle Badger are both passionate about saving the Murray and Darling rivers. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria, on the lands of the Wurundjeri and is broadcast nationally on community radio stations thanks to the Community Radio Network. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Federation for their generous financial support. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page, Earth Matters 3CR Radio. You can also follow us on Twitter at Earth M Radio. If you'd like to listen or share this or previous editions of the program, you can find all our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. Well, that's all for today. I do hope you've enjoyed listening to the program. Thanks for your company this week and the Earth Matters team. We'll be back again next week with more Deadly Green social justice environment news from all over this awesome planet. I'm Kerry Lee and I'll see you next time. Thank you.